3: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us,
1: email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Monday, 7th of March. This is Alan Cantwell standing in for Michael on The Michael Reed Show. On the program this morning, as Russia continues its bombardment of cities in Ukraine, The refugee crisis is escalating with the United Nations saying that one and a half million have now fled the country. This morning we talked to two former soldiers turned politicians for their take on where it will all end. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin announced the establishment of a register for people to pledge support for Ukrainian refugees arriving into Ireland. We ask, can... And how will we cope with as many as 80,000? With the cost of filling a car set to get even higher, the average price of the pumps now exceeds 180 a litre. The government has been called on to take action to address the impact of rising fuel costs which are having on motorists and hauliers. Very good morning and welcome to the show. Alan Cantwell, in for the next week, as Mike is away for a few days. Ukraine we start with, and if anyone for a moment thinks that what they are seeing is propaganda and what they're hearing from Russia is propaganda. Take a look at our Facebook page and our Twitter account this morning for LMFM. And have a look at one of the most harrowing pictures I certainly have seen as a journalist in all my years covering stories and will leave you in no doubt the sheer savagery that is being perpetrated by Russia on innocent people in Ukraine. And that's where we start this morning with Ukraine. As Russia says, it will hold fire in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities to allow civilians to escape. And that's according to state media this morning. The people in Kiev will be offered safe passage to Russia's ally Belarus, while those in Kharkiv will have a corridor leading only to Russia itself. Rocket attacks have continued on residential areas in several cities, with Ukraine warning of an all-out assault on the capital. It comes after two ceasefire attempts in the southern city of Mariupol, Or people are running out of food, collapsed at the weekend. This morning, we're joined by two former soldiers turned politicians, Independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, and Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Gentlemen, good morning to you both. I'll start with you first, um, Senator Crockwell. An all-out assault. Are you of the view that we are on the cusp of that happening? And if it does happen, what do you anticipate the consequences will be?
4: Uh, Good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Um, Yes, I think we're on the cusp of a full assault. um Uh, The figures that we've been quoted at the moment: 1.5 million have crossed. That is, um, if they're distributed around the uh, the European Union, that is 30,000 refugees coming to Ireland. And I believe the number you gave at the top of the programme, between 80 and 100,000, is probably a realistic expectation. As for um, how far Putin will go, I'm sort of of the view that he will get as far as the river and take the east of Ukraine along with the capital city, and stop at that point. Uh, of course, he'll have taken the most productive part of Ukraine when he has done that. Mm.
1: Okay, well, you, more than anyone, will understand the, I suppose, military nuances of what is going on at the moment in Ukraine and the the offensive by Russia. Um, would you be of the view that there is a sense of one of the mightiest forces in the world being bogged down and coming under, I suppose, resistance or is that resistance futile or is putin just playing a game waiting to pounce at any moment
4: no i i actually believe the russians have been caught on the hop here i, I think they thought they were going to drive into ukraine into the welcoming arms of of uh kindred spirits and what has actually happened is they have met the, the most um uh determined resistance uh, and um they are fighting tooth and nail for their country and it's one of the reasons why i feel our country should have sent what armaments we have uh, to support them um but that's a, probably a debate for another day well it is a
1: debate because it certainly questions our neutrality whether neutrality even exists in this country albeit in name i mean is that something that we will have to address sooner rather than later
4: well, actually, I've written to all of my colleagues in Leinster House uh, only yesterday. Uh, Minister Coveney has moved from a position over the last 10 days of Ireland is neutral to Ireland as neutral and militarily non-aligned, which are two polar opposites, and now... Uh, The other day they've said Ireland is militarily non-aligned. That now means that the neutrality that the people of this country thought they had does not exist and that change has come about as a result of statements by the Minister and the Taoiseach and uh, it has happened without any debate or discussion in Leinster House or indeed any wider public debate. So we are not neutral. The moment we sent uh, aid to Ukraine, which was the right thing to do, uh, we we uh, give up our neutrality at
1: that point. Peter Fitzpatrick, let me bring you in on that very point. Is that your assessment? Have we now relinquished our neutrality when it comes to situations of conflict around the globe?
5: Well, first of all, Alan, uh, I think that you, you opened the program by talking about innocent people and the people in Ukraine are, are, are innocent people. Like like this uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine was un, unprovoked. It, it's illegal. It shows a blatant disregard for international laws. And more importantly, it shows a blatant disregard for human life. Uh, I come, I come in a different light. Uh, I think I, I agree with our common position. Uh, Ireland has always, always been a neutral country, and uh, I, I think you know it, it, the only way out of this hell is through uh, politics and and talking. The fact I think also the fact we were, we were a neutral country it, it shows in the history that we can sort this this out. So uh, I think Ireland is in a very unique situation at the moment. Uh, or on the, on the UN Security Council. And I think, I think, I think the most important thing is, is, is trying to get a, a peaceful uh, solution. The, 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 the bottom line is here is that uh, we, we are not a military power. We don't have the type of military that would have any impact on the invasion. Uh, I met a lot of Ukrainian families over the last number of weeks and they came into my constituency office and asked for help. I met a lady there last Friday in my constituency office, her mother, her sister, her sister's two children, and then the two children's uh, children, so they're aiding the whole family at the moment, and they want help. And they do realise that Ireland is not having a military power.
1: No, they don't have a military power, but surely we must look at that in the context of what we are witnessing on our television screens and listening to on the radio over the past number of number of weeks at this stage. We are seeing women and children being murdered. Essentially, they're being murdered by Russian forces. I mean, we haven't witnessed the level of ref- refugees since 1939. And we're just standing Absolutely. back and hoping that there will be some sort of negotiated solution to this, which ultimately will happen. But surely as a country, as a people with a conscience, should be doing a lot more.
5: Well, in fairness, I, I spoke to the East Ukrainian people, and I did listen to Ukrainian people. Now, the, the bottom line is, we don't have fighter jets but we, but they've asked us to send out airplanes to transport the women and children out of the Ukraine. We don't, we don't have armored tanks and we don't have trucks, but we can send out truck loads of supplies. Uh, we don't have ships, but we can send out ship loads of relief. And uh, like uh, we, we can't send any any soldiers. We don't have the soldiers sent out, but we can send any volunteers sit. People in Ukraine are looking ahead, and they are very, very happy with the, with Ireland so far. Like I, I listened to the minister last night on on, on, on the TV last night. Hopefully about 1,500 uh, emigrates come into this country at the moment, is, and they need help. I contacted the Department of Justice on Friday. I contacted the local authorities and everything else. We need to put a system in place. Like, if we can help in any way at all, but, but getting these people out of the Ukraine. Like, one, okay. and a half million, one and a half million people has been evacuated from Ukraine in the last 12 days. And there's talk now that could be 80,000 refugees coming to Ireland. So us as a, as a country, that that's one where we
1: can really, really help. We can, and and I suppose, Peter, there probably is another thing that we can do, and there's a certain sense of reluctance on the part of the government to do it. But given what we have heard from the Russian ambassador on an international interview which he participated in, talking about bullying that Russian children in Irish schools are undergoing at the hands of Irish people and the position that we're adopting on the war which is completely, complete lies, surely we should get rid of them now.
5: Alan, what I I disagree with the government there at the moment. Is. Uh, the Russian ambassador and his diplomat should be expelled from Ireland. What, they, what they've done, they've told, they told lies to the Aracist Committee, they told lies to the government, they told lies to the people and everything else. If you go back to 2018, we expelled Russian diplomats following the poisoning incident in the UK. Like, they should be gone, they're liars, are telling lies and I do disagree with the government, the government should send the Russian ambassador and its diplomats back.
1: Okay, let me bring you in there uh, Jared, as well and I'll ask you to put on I suppose your, your military hat on this one to try and if we can pick through what the potential consequences of an escalation of this conflict will be. We've heard calls for the possibility of a no fly zone um, over Ukraine but that is you know it's a declaration surely of war against the Russians. Wouldn't it be if we did that?
4: Absolutely. Uh, listen, Alan. I mean, I understand the the call for uh, the enforcement of a no-fly zone. It would be a great thing to be able to do. But the moment we uh, put uh, allied uh, aircraft in the sky, because you can't have a no-fly zone unless you police it, and the moment it's been policed by the British, the Germans, uh, whoever, NATO forces, for the sake of argument, uh, we are then in World War Three, and there is no getting away from it at that stage. Other belligerents at that stage may decide to come on either side. Uh, for example, the Chinese may decide to support um, uh, Russia. They haven't at the moment at the United Nations Security Council, but they may very well decide to do that. The North Koreans may decide to support Russia. And this thing can escalate out of all control in a very, very quick
1: we uh, oui. One, though, gets, gets the sense, don't they, that because of the unity within Europe and there's that global willingness to participate in sanctions against Russia, that we are in a very firm place and a, on a very good footing to squeeze Vladimir Putin. I mean, if you were to ask the experts, they'd say, well, what we're witnessing now is the slow demise of Vladimir Putin. It might take a year, it might take three years, years, but he will be off the stage sooner rather than later.
4: Well, that's a fair point. However, um, if we look at the history of sanctions throughout conflict in the world, sanctions simply don't work. The oligarchs that we're going after... These guys are wealthy enough and smart enough to move capital around the world and we will finish up chasing them around the world. Uh, Putin himself, if the oligarchs are hurt badly financially, I have no doubt they'll take out Putin. Uh, with respect to the Irish ambassador, uh, the Russian ambassador to Ireland, I disagree with Peter here. I agree with the government. We should keep him and two of his staff in order to keep uh, communication channel open. But I would ask, why have we got 33 people in the uh, Russian embassy in Ireland what would we possibly need 33 people for
1: well according to reports and security experts are there as facilitators of <laughs> disseminating false information and gathering information in order to send it back to moscow we're almost a hub as it were for the, the spy network around the world
4: and that may well be the case and if we are now is the time to close it down uh, expel a lot of them just keep you must keep the ambassador because we must have a line of communication open we have about uh, well i'm not going to say how many but we have irish citizens in russia at the moment who will need uh, to be able to contact home be able to work through diplomatic channels to get them home. So from that point of view, we need an ambassador here. And by the way, every time that guy appears on TV, uh, he is the embodiment of Putin and everything that is bad about Putin. The Russian people themselves, I was in Russia in 2019, and myself, my wife went there. Russian people themselves are just like you and me. They want to get on with their day's work. They want to uh, live, love, and be happy. Uh, People like Putin, uh, these people are evil and there is no getting away from that.
1: Peter Fitzpatrick, let me bring you there and ask you where ultimately this will end because, I mean, if we look at the history of any conflict, any recent conflict anyway, it's always ended in the one place and that's around a table with chairs and a negotiated settlement. Ultimately, that's what's going to happen here, but when and how, do you think?
5: Well, Alan, I hope as soon as possible, Alan, but uh, the the bottom line is, uh, I know Joe was talking with the Russian ambassador, how can you talk to a Russian ambassador and his, and his, and his, and his, and his diplomats to keep telling the lies? I think we should just throw them out of the country. And I do agree, and I think we should... The, the sanctions at the moment is, the only, way, the only way is to hurt someone is in their pockets. And in fairness, again, we have an opportunity here now to, to you know, to, 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 to cut... Like, if you go back to, the think it was 2005, up as far, as was 2017, there was 118 million, uh, billion, sorry, funneled through the, uh, the IFSC, and I think I think Ireland should, should should go in there and do do a similar situation there at the moment is, but uh, the dialogue communications is the whole way. My biggest fear there at the moment is, and you mentioned in the, in the introduction, the humanitarian corridors, how, how the uh, immigration, sorry, immigrants are going to get out of the country. Like, like Putin, Putin uh, uh, says that he's open to dialogue, but the Kremlin is saying that he's open to dialogue, but but if the, if the talks are going too long, it's not going to happen. But I, I think I think I think it's about time that we all put our heads together. Is I looked at the t- I looked at the TV last night and I seen another family. there with like you know husband and wife and two children being being, being bombed and being murdered and everything else. Like we have to do, and I, and I think talking is, is the best way at the moment. Is and uh, like, uh, like the easy thing to do is for me to come on your radio program this morning and say oh yes, they're sending tanks and sending nuclear bombs and everything else at the moment. That's not going to help there at the moment. Is uh, it's it's twelve days since this war started. It's very important that we put our heads down together. And, uh, a lot of these big countries like Germany, France, America and everything else at the moment, they do have the power. And I think it's very important that, that a meeting is is organised with, with, with Putin as soon as possible. Uh, Putin has his agenda. He said that if he doesn't get his demands from Ukraine, that he will continue on the war. Okay. But isn't it, Alan? Mean, this this can't happen, Alan. I mean, uh, and, and, and the only people that lose night is, 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 is these women, children,
1: and a family. Okay, let, let uh, this, Jared. Let, let me just try and you know do a little bit of crystal ball gazing here in relation to the next phase of this, and it's already very much underway. And that's the mass movement of people. The United Nations tell us there's in around one and a half million people on the move. We're expected to, if you were to believe figures, to get somewhere in the region of fifty 000 to eighty thousand refugees in the coming months. Already there are. Some some, uh, some refugees here. Now, um, I spoke to the regional group of independents and I know, Peter, you were, you were a part of that in relation to what your view is on it. But I want to ask Gerard Crockwell about this, where you're looking for an all-of-government approach in terms of the way we need to react to this. So we're talking about you know, social welfare, housing, um, we're talking about health and a joined-up approach in order to deal with this. Will it work? Are we able to facilitate as many as 80,000 refugees, or will it be a wholesale mess? What do you think, Jared?
4: Well, look, I, I do know that the Secretary Generals of all of the departments are now meeting on an almost daily basis. I do believe that we will have to pull in uh, places like Cullum Barracks in, in Mullingar that has been closed uh, and various other. Um, Uh, buildings around the country that have been closed uh, because of government cutbacks a few years ago, but I think the 80,000 you're speaking of may prove to be rather conservative. This is the largest mobilisation of refugees the world has seen, you quite rightly said, since 1939. And I'm getting estimates of between 7 and 8 million people are likely to be displaced. Now, if we share those out around the uh, European Union, that's between 140 and 160 thousand coming to ireland and it will be no matter if we had the greatest planners in the world this is going to be a logistical nightmare
1: and it is because we're not experts joining up the dots when it comes to initiatives such as this, I mean, we're going to rely on the generosity of the Irish people, and I've no doubt that they will stand up and they will put their hand up and say, yes, we will take in refugees. But for how long do they take them in? For six months, a year, two years? That'll wear thin pretty quickly. And unless the government have some concerted plan of action in place to have a long-term sustainable solution, we don't want another mosney here. We want people to be able to be housed in facilities with facilities in which they can access whether it be schools health facilities whatever but we have failed to do that you know for the homeless people in this country and the people who are looking for houses so how the hell are we going to do it for 80,000 or plus refugees who are coming into the country
4: Well, indeed, you you have on the other side of this conversation Peter Fitzpatrick, who is a great advocate for housing um, and has spoken many times on the issue. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, despite people like Peter and the Rural Independent Group uh, speaking out constantly about the situation regarding housing, we have failed to grasp the nettle of housing. Um, So I do fear... This is going to be the military experts are saying this is a conflict that may go on for many years. So Irish people offering a room in their house or various other solutions is grand in the short term. In the long term there needs to be joined up thinking, as you put it, and we need to start rapidly looking at how we're going to uh, build houses for people and house people. We also have a situation developing now where we have said to the Ukrainians, quite rightly, come to Ireland, you will get, uh, you will be treated as a European citizen when you come here. You can work, you can draw social welfare, all of the rights of, of a European
1: citizen. And of course that temporary protection directive was signed into law, as it were, by Sir Van der Leyen on Friday, which which is a positive thing. But again, is that going to be indefinite?
4: Well, I, I think it is going to be indefinite. I think that um, I, I think you will have Peter Fitzpatrick on this show in a year's time, demanding that something is done about housing. Um, and and uh, I think the problem we have is that this is not going to go away quickly. We all we're all hoping for a quick okay. end to this. It's not going to end quickly.
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Okay,
1: Senator, um, are we gone? No, no, oh, we're no, still here, my, my no, no. apologies I just I just uh, got something else in my ear there Sandra. I'm just going to leave you there for a moment and bring in Peter Fitzpatrick to give the final word to you Peter, and I say it in the context of let's just leave the housing aside because it's a long term problem we have to deal with, but more immediately with refugees coming in, what plan of action do we need to have in place? Because this is going to happen within the handful of weeks
5: Well I, I have to agree with everything that had said there at the moment is our housing situation in this country is an absolute disaster there at the moment the first thing is, uh, uh, like, as I said, if you walk down any town, village or city in Ireland there at the moment, the amount of vacant properties at the moment, and we, we've risen this with the government for the last number, number of years, I honestly, Alan, I can't see the, the situation getting sorted out. As I said, uh, first of all, we have to get a presence at the two airports that are in Poland. They're talking roughly about four or 500 people coming in on these planes, maybe on a daily basis, right? So when they arrive at the airport, what's going to happen? As I said, you, I contacted the Department of Justice there last Friday, and nothing. I contacted local authorities on Friday, asked them what was happening, nothing. For the simple reason is they're all waiting for one, for someone to make a decision. And we've known this for a long, long time that this was going to happen, and we've done absolutely nothing. We've over in a hundred thousand people in a waiting list at the moment, looking for houses. At the moment, is so. You, can you can you, you can you imagine what's going to happen here at the moment? Is if we have people in the council list for the last nine or ten years looking for a house, and all of a sudden people can come in from another country and automatically get jump, jump to housing at like, the moment. The, the government's going to have to sit down okay. for a situation in place to keep everybody happy. And I apologize for saying this, but it's, it's not going to happen.
1: Okay, gentlemen, we must leave it there. Independent TD for loud, Peter Fitzpatrick and Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this morning.
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
1: Welcome back. Just a couple of your comments in relation to the item on Ukraine at the beginning of the programme. Marie from Drogheda phoned in. She says, I know everyone is afraid of this turning into another world war, but how can we just stand by and watch innocent people, including children, being murdered? It's just horrific. What if it was Ireland? John from Drogheda phoned in to say that the Russian president warned repeatedly about Ukraine joining NATO and NATO putting in atomic missiles in Ukraine, which would have been five minutes from Moscow. But nobody passed any remarks. Didn't take any notice. With the cost of filling a car set to get even higher, the average price at the pumps now exceeds 180 a litre. I think that probably is a little bit higher than that since the weekend, but according to CSO figures, the prices increased by 29.5% for petrol and by 32% for diesel in the 12 months to January 2021. Sinn Fein spokesperson on transport, Darren Rourke has called for government action to address the impact of rising fuel costs, which are having on motorists and particular Holiers and Deputy O'Rourke joins us this morning. Deputy, thanks for taking our call this morning Um, The government, for their part said they will take action on this but won't do so prior to the budget in October. However the Taunish, if I remember correctly, said they wanted to wait for the European Commission paper on it before making any decision because they wanted to make sure that whatever they do, that the governments are in concert with this and one would think that's a pretty prudent uh, road to take, would you not think, Deputy?
3: Look, I think there's a, a couple of things, Alan, and, and everybody can see the, the the rate of the increase, and it is it's incredibly stark. Um, you give the figures there; I think you're, you're correct. It's it's closer to uh, one ninety than yeah. it is for, to, to one eighty, and in some places in, in the city and around the city, it's it's over two euros, um, and that is having a, a, a huge impact on families. And I, I'll point towards. Home heating oil, as well, it's actually uh, on a far uh, higher rate of, of increase, and, and um, has seen nearly fifty percent gone on in the last number of days, on top of a fifty percent increase in the last year. So you've seen a, 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 a home uh, like a half a fill or a fill of, of kerosene gone up a hundred percent in in the last year, um, and and that's going to have a, a huge impact. It's already having a huge impact on on families. And and on businesses as well, I'll point towards those people who drive for a living. So, so hauliers and farmers and bus operators and taxi drivers, I, I'm dealing with those on a daily basis. And they are to the pin, pin of the collar and, and beyond. And really, they are urging government for urgent action. Um, so so this idea that we'll wait for a uh, pan-European response um, and I I think in terms of the response to the Ukrainian crisis there is significant merit in that but we have to be honest here Alan the starting point uh, is not the same across Europe the level of tax for example that's been levied on a litre of petrol or a litre of diesel is not the same across the European yeah,
1: yeah we get that and I think there's a recognition on the part of the government that they also see that and they are going to act in some shape or form on it but it's a question of when but one would presume the way things are going that it'll be probably sooner rather than later.
3: Well well, if we were to track the the, the comments by the Tarnish, and you mentioned them there they, they changed from you know for the first time uh, in in uh, ever, as, as I remember, in the doll, uh, he mentioned the prospect of doing something on excise duty. Excise duty uh, is a huge levy. Just to just to be clear, mm. the, the rate of taxes levied on um, on petrol and diesel is over fifty percent. So, so more than half of what you're paying at the pump is um, is taxes that are that the government have significant discretion on. They don't have full discretion on us. The, you know, VAT is not straightforward in terms of of a, been able to move on it, and maybe that's a thing that that will happen at a European level. But excise duty is entirely at the discretion of, of of government. You know, we have made the point in terms of carbon tax that that's entirely at the discretion of government.
1: Well, it's not really that's signed into legislation that's going to happen on May first, is that? understand it's
3: the, it. it's the government's legislation. You know, the government uh, have it within their gift to 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 uh, suspend it or to to um, redirect it or to defer it. Um, so it's so it's within their gift. Whereas, for example. That is significantly more complicated because of of, of European rules, and, and you move you, you almost need to move at a at a European level in relation to that. But I, but I think, look, it is, is really important. Time is of the essence here. But what I'm hearing from from people in industry and from individual families and businesses. Is that the, to the pin of their collar? They, for example, the road hauliers met with government before Christmas. There was protests on the streets. You remember those
1: protests? I do. I on, certainly do.
3: Outside Leinster House and at the port before Christmas. But okay, so, deputy. We're, we're a number of months later now, yeah. and we're, we're still hearing that we need to, uh, we're, we're going to see how things go, right. we're going to operate on, a, on a, a coordinated basis. People are to the pin of their collar, and, you know, it isn't good enough from government uh, they, they met with the hauliers before christmas they met with them in the middle of february and refused outright uh, measures that that would help that right. industry for but, example but and deputy, would also he- help bus operators uh,
1: deputy this isn't just necessarily about the hauliers because there's the trickle down effect here and the broader ramifications of these fuel prices are going to hit consumers because the hauliers have to take a hit on the price they will pass it on to their customers, who in turn will turn it up, pass it on to the consumer. So everybody gets hit on this.
3: Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and uh, um, I am my transport spokesperson. Um, so I, I, I hear very clearly from the sectors that, that I, I represent. Um, but but of course, this, this permeates absolutely every facet and I heard um, Know, hoteliers and restaurateurs on during the week we'll hear from from farmers in terms of the impact logistics just factors into the, the cost of of everything and we see that the prospect of runaway and inflation and, and the impact that's going to have for literally everybody across the board when i meet uh, the energy sector for example they say very clearly that they are very, very concerned about the, the, the impact, increase in price they're going to have on vulnerable families. They think, you know, it's going to have a, a, a huge amount of people driven into fuel and energy poverty, into poverty, and the impact of that on, on society. So, so it really does behove government. Okay. Act could- urgently.
1: Can I, can I just ask you, because time's running away with us on this, Deputy, and I want you to uh, just consider if this argument has any merit, because if we look prior to the invasion by the Russians of Ukraine, we were looking at inflation increasing in this country and across Europe. That has accelerated significantly as a result of what is happening uh, in Eastern Europe. Now, that has been driven by sanctions in order for us to put the squeeze on the russian president and make the life in any way we can a little bit more comfortable for the people in ukraine to get them out and to stop the bombing surely we should be taking a little bit of pain as well and if that means paying more at the pumps so be it it may not be forever
3: this is uh, that's a fair point, Alan. This is a, a, a direct consequence of the the, the the measures that were taken in terms of, of sanctions. But what we need to make sure, and I think there is r- real merit, uh, uh, for example, the European Union as a block needs to act as a block, similar to it, the way it did in relation to, to vaccinations during the pandemic. It needs to act as a block to identify alternative supplies for russian coal oil and gas um we see the the impact that the statements from the biden administration have had on 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 the the cost of of brent crude oil that's the type of volatility that's in the market so the european union needs to work with its uh, um w- with others to identify al- alternatives and it also and the government have a responsibility in relation to this it needs to regulate the market to ensure that there isn't profiteering, to ensure there isn't price gouging, to ensure there, 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 that uh, people have access to, the, to, to those supplies in a fair and equitable way, in okay. a way that's, that, that is fair, that there isn't over-ordering or, 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 or hoarding for example, which there is you know, there's, there's allegations of that at, at this point in time. Okay,
1: v- very good Deputy, we must leave it there. Thank you for joining us. That was uh, Deputy Darren O'Rourke Sinn Féin Spokesperson on Transport. Thank you for joining us.
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
1: Welcome back. A couple of your comments in relation to the Ukraine. Anne in Clough, Head got in touch via WhatsApp to say that our government can't cope with our own people. How are we going to cope with refugees? I feel sorry for refugees, but our government needs to cop itself on. Seamus from Dundalk phoned to say that he's delighted that Ireland is opening its doors to refugees from the Ukraine, but worries about how it's all going to work. These poor people, he said, will be traumatised. Not only will they need somewhere to live, but also emotional and financial support. Proper structures need to be in place for all of this to happen. We'll read more of your comments a little bit later on. Now, the IFA has warned the government that it would be unwise to make any decision on the introduction of compulsory crop growing measures before engaging fully with farmers. IFA President Tim Cullinan said that there has been no discussion with farmers regarding media reports that farmers may be required to grow crops in 2022. Mr Cullinan said it was far from certain that asking all farmers to plant crops is the best use of the resources that are likely to be available to them. And Tim Cullinan joins us uh, this morning tim i'm no farmer but it strikes me that this if it is this directive introduced throwing down a few seeds and hoping for a crop at the end of the season ain't gonna happen
7: yeah and of was good morning good morning to your listeners there uh, i suppose so what was unhelpful was you know, the way that this message was leaked out to the media over the weekend and uh, it did create um so a lot of worry and concern again among farmers and I give most of yesterday to the speaking to farmers but look moving on from that and that's happened and you know the statement saying you know, that all farmers would, would grow a crop and you know, we, we, need, to, we need a balance here. First of all, you know, coming out with that statement before engaging with ourselves and, and, and other farm organisations you know, wasn't the right thing to do because we all, look, we're all very concerned and worried. We all know the impact the war that's going on mm-hmm. in the Ukraine is, is having already on us in the farming yeah. sector. So, sorry,
1: Tim, can, man, I just, can I just, can I just, apologise for cutting across it, but can I just clarify something here, are you saying that yeah. Minister McConalogue went on a solo run on this?
7: Well, look, they, 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 I wasn't aware that this was coming over the weekend. That all farmers are going to be asked to grow crops. So he did.
1: No, he, he there was no negotiation whatsoever. He just yeah, decided, no, 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 rather no, no, than they, fly they, a they, kite, he do it.
7: Yeah, just to be clear, there was there was. Uh, contact with ourselves here and our own association that the meeting was taking place on on Tuesday evening, but you know that's as far as it went. And you know, in the, in a situation like this, isn't it far better that you know you have the stakeholders in the room and you come up with a, a giant proposal around this? But look, moving on from that, that's what happened. What's important here is we all understand there's going to be a deficit, like 30 percent of the corn that's used in Europe is grown in the Ukraine, and between Russia and the Ukraine, between and the Produce thirty percent of the grain for the world. So look, this is a serious situation, and we absolutely want to engage and work with with the minister and the, minister and the department on this on this very. Um, Concerning issue, and you know, there's more. I think the first thing we need to do is look at what we're doing already because you know, if you look at farming today compared to farming back in the 1940s, mm. you no, know, when there was a compulsory tillage order.
1: Well, I want to ask so you about that. If, if, if yeah, the yeah. minister is prepared to go on a solar run on this, he may go on a solar run and impose a compulsory tillage order, which happened before.
7: Yeah, but look, I mean, I think we're at the point here where we need proper engagement. The point I going to make there is, you know, looking at farming practice today and farming practice in the 1940s, you just can't, it's like chalk and cheese. You know, you have specialised dairy farmers, you have specialised pig and poultry farmers, and, um, you know, you have an all a different mix out there. So look at what we're doing at the moment. We're one of the best in the world at growing grass. So we need to incentivize in and get farmers to grow absolutely as much grass as possible uh to build up the stock silage maize is, is another another crop which dairy farmers and beef finishers it's a very useful crop and there needs to be some way of incentivizing farmers to grow more graze. so that they can be tra- inter-trading between farmers so there's so many things we can do here we have the tree crop rule which in, impacts on tillage farmers there's so many areas that we can so adjust. Okay. In, in this current crisis to get more feed. This is about getting more feed into the system and to ensure that we can feed all our animals uh, for the next year. Okay,
1: Tim, Tim, Tim time, I'm, the- I'm sorry, but time, time is against us here, but I just want to ask you, have you made any formal contact with the department or the minister in relation to this in order to engage in some sort of formal negotiation around it?
8: No, no, sir.
7: We will be engaging with the Minister and with his officials tomorrow evening. What we are doing, though, is we are engaging with our own members. I had um, our own members on on a call last night, up to 10 o'clock last night. I'm engaging with our members again this evening and tomorrow morning so that we're putting our proposals together when we go in there tomorrow evening. So we will have solid proposals for the Minister. How can all how we can all jointly work through you know, what is a very serious crisis. And, Joe, you know, I, I want to say as well, that mm-hmm. so we've been highlighting for quite a number of months the impact that uh, the, you know, the, the price increases we're seeing in, in seed, fertiliser, energy, diesel oil, all of those... Um, Uh, inputs have we've seen massive price increases anything up to 200% in some instances in in fertiliser and we have to ensure as well we're going to have the adequate supply of fertiliser in the system to be able to grow the extra crops as well
1: Okay we must leave it there Uh, Tim, Tim Cullen President of the IFA thank you for joining us this morning
6: Michael Reed on
1: LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Councillor Emer Tobin undertook to wear a pair of cataract simulation glasses last week to experience the hazards faced by people who are blind and partially sighted on the streets of Navan and Kennedy Place in particular. To say the experiment was an experience was probably an understatement. Councillor Tobin joins us this morning along with Geraldine Cusson who's a registered blind and works for the NCBI at their service centre, which is located at the back of the charity shop at Kennedy Place. Um good morning to you both. Um Emer, can I just ask you first, you decided to undertake this experiment. Why? Good
8: morning Alan and good morning Geraldine and to your listeners. Um, I suppose the only way you can really realise how, um, I won't say dangerous now, that, that might over say it, but how many trip hazards are out there for people whose eyesight wouldn't be as good as the rest of us. You know, the only way to find out what they have to deal with every day is put on a pair of glasses and then you, you just realise how little um, vision they have in terms of you know stepping over steps and and going up um you know towards Preston place there where you have handrails you know i just noticed that i really really was struck by how many areas that you really have to watch your footing and if you're if you don't have the ability to see what's going on it can really uh, deter you from going outside and then you've the thing of a lot of the delivery trucks outside the back of dun stores so there's a lot of congestion there's a lot of movement Obviously, there's a lot of people heading from the back of Dun Stores and, and Kennedy Plaza over towards the shopping centre, so you're crossing over where all the cars come in and come out to park at Kennedy Plaza. So there's a lot going on. You do kind of need to have your wits about you, and it's only when you wear a pair of glasses like this you realise that you know there's there, you know you you've got to pay attention and you have to watch your mm-hmm. footing and uh, just really really look after yourself.
1: Okay, there will always be those obstacles that will be insurmountable. We can do nothing about them but from what you experience is there easy fixes to some of the obstacles that you came across?
8: Yeah like Geraldine was great she gave me a list of things that she thought would, would certainly make life easier for for those that are visually impaired and um, so for example when your eyesight isn't as, isn't as good going up or down steps they all look the same and it can all look like one um piece of ground you you can't see the difference in depth or the changes with each step. so obviously highlighting the top of each step with, with a yellow slightly embossed strip straightway um you know conveys the, the 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 kind of the fact that there are steps there, so that's a very easy solution. There's no major expense involved there. The handrails that are currently at Preston Place and on the way over towards the shopping centre. They are really, really broad. A normal person's hand would struggle to hold on to that handrail. And in the event of losing your footing, you, you would not be able to kind of retain your your posture and stay upright because it's a really, really broad handrail. I, I'm not actually quite sure. I have put in a question um, as to why it was made so wide. Because, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're using the handrail to go up and down steps, you want it to be able to steady yourself, just in case mm-hmm. you, you miss, have a misfooting or anything like that. So, um, other things like the pedestrian crossing itself isn't terribly um, isn't terribly well marked. out because people kind of could could forget that there is a pedestrian crossing because, as I say, there's a lot of traffic in and out. It's a busy part of the town. So, I just think just to, to, to repaint the, the pedestrian crossing and maybe a couple of signs to point out to people that this is the part. Of Kennedy Plaza, that they want people to cross to and from the shopping centre.
1: Mm. Let me bring uh, Geraldine in there. Geraldine, it strikes me that you know, despite all the advances which we have made, and in fairness, we have made advances advances for people with disabilities. It's the small stuff that we seem to have got wrong. Would that be a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely, Alan. As as Emo was saying, they're very, very um, you know, cost effective things. That you know, a bucket of, of yellow paint really um would make my life an awful lot easier navigating that car park. Like I, I work in the car park, I'm in it in a daily basis. Um I just find it's an absolute nightmare. It's one of the busiest places in Navel. Um and and not to have a clearly marked um it's 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 just a nightmare. It's like I, I suffer from sight loss. I have a condition known as called RP which kinda leaves I have no peripheral vision at all. So um, I would, you know, be constantly looking down, trying to navigate steps. So, and, and as Emer said, when when I look down, all I see is a ramp when I'm looking at steps. I don't know what steps. I, I actually visualize it, if you can understand, mm-hmm. it can morph into one piece of slab. So to, to to kind of clearly mark it, it's just yellow paint, just yellow paint. It's the simplest little thing. Um. You know that that would make it just easier. Like I have fallen down steps here in the car park myself, and um, I know like I'm I made here managing the charity shop end of it here for the National Council of the Blind. So like I know where they are now. It's it's kind of my my comfort zone now because I've got used to it. But of course, anybody coming from a different town, a different area, which we do get, now, and is it's great to see. It's so busy and back open and it's it's wonderful. But. You know, to, to to even to cross from 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 from, from say the store end over towards the shopping centre, it's it's you have two ways. You have traffic coming. You have, you have cars reversing. You have delivery trucks. Do you know you have these new e-scooters and um, you have lads on skateboards?
1: Of G- Geraldine. Can I ask you, is your condition will it deteriorate to the point where you will have no vision?
0: It possibly could. Um it just it's, it's what I have it's called retinitis pigmatosis, like it's the only way I could describe it it's like freckles on the back of your eyes mm-hmm. and every so often a clump would appear and actually block your vision. So when I was small, when I was diagnosed, when I was eight, you know, it has got relatively worse as I've as I've got older. On top of that, um I have had cataracts on both eyes. So Eamor there ha- used just the, the cataract simulation glasses to walk around the car park um, last week, but as I explained to her, you, you, a lot of eye conditions would have cataracts on top of, of the actual eye condition, if you know what I mean. So you're you're trying to navigate both of them. So yes, my my eyesight will get will get worse. Um, but look with the help of NCBI, you know they they are just a fantastic organisation. Um, they 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 really we, like I'm involved in the advocacy end of it, um, and we we're we're just we're just trying to to pinpoint the, just the most basic little things.
1: Okay, well, well, let me put that point then to to Eimear, to you, Councillor. I mean, it's over to you now. You have witnessed it. You understand what the requirements are. It's a question now of carving out some sort of budget to or, in order to initiate some sort of plan, or do we that's now that's uh, do we have to go out and do a complete audit? of the area to decide to get a more wholesome plan in place than just doing it piecemeal
8: yes no absolutely alan so look we sent in a list of all the improvements um we we feel would be quickest and least expensive to 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 get installed So, so that is hopefully is going to happen we sent in a load of pictures then of the areas where we feel there's greatest concerns um, there's other issues also about built environments. If you look along Kennedy uh, Road, there's all those um, kind of concrete oblong blocks to prevent parking. And if you just imagine somebody going along with their cane and they're, they're hitting off against built, in, you know, um, and now we know we need these to deter people from parking. They're essential, but. You know, just things like that. It does make a negotiation along, navigation along the streets very, very difficult. And then when you have all these different poles, again, they just appear as barriers. So we're just trying to draw the attention of the council to that and just see is there any way we can minimise. You know, and and that's going to be difficult because you know they're not putting poles up for the sake. Of they're putting up for they need to signpost things or or, or let people know where they can get parking. There's another thing we also need is probably some more um, parking spaces for those with, with um, uh, you know, extra needs. So that's another thing we're, we're, we're pushing. But you see, the problem is um, under 2030, Navin has great plans, obviously, for doing up the town. Mm. And as we can see, great things are already happening. But Kennedy Plaza is going to be overhauled and Kennedy Road is going to have a whole different setup in terms of the bus stops and and all of that. So... You know, I have had conversations, all right. I, I, I have kind of come across a little bit of re- reluctance to do a huge amount in this area because things are going to change again in a couple of years. But at the same time, we're not going to stop myself and George, and i certainly going to keep pushing to get the basic things.
1: No, but done. I mean, Councillor, you've been around long enough to know that this tends to get kicked around. And before you know it, we're two, three years down the road and nothing's happened.
8: No, no. There's absolutely no way we're going to let, let this get kicked up because, you know, this is very achievable stuff. This is not expensive. This is going to make life easier. We're talking about, you know, replacing some handrails so that they're they're easy for everybody to grip onto. Getting strips on 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 all the different steps in the different areas. We're going to get better guidance painting on the ground around um, delivery spots and around the pedestrian crossing. You know yourself, Alan, that if you've been in Avenue, you're driving into. I
6: right, do, I know nothing well, there. yeah.
8: Yeah, like when you're walking along, um, or when you're driving into Kennedy Plaza trying <sighs> to find a car park mm-hmm. space, you know, you're looking left and right, and, you know, unless that, that whole pedestrian crossing area is very strongly painted in strong colors you're so busy trying to, 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 to get a space, it, it, you know, it, it is kind of dangerous. So I just think that, you know, when we think about disabilities, we think about people who have mobility issues. We don't really think about the, the person who's visually impaired, who's trying to find, you know, cross, uh, uh, you know, the, the the car park space. And there's over 700 people using Geraldine service there in Navin. And like every single one of them has the right to get around Navin safely and um, feel at ease doing so. So no, the there's absolutely no way we're, 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 we will pursue this until we get the smaller things done first, and then we'll, as you say, um, get an audit and just to, to compile a list. And there's plenty of us here in Aintree and, and other councils in town would feel very strongly about this as well.
1: Okay, ladies, we must leave it there, Councillor Imre Tobin and Geraldine Cusson. Thank you so much for joining us,
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
1: Welcome back to the programme in case you're just joining us it's Alan Cantwell and for Michael Reid for the rest of the week Michael's off on a few days holidays a couple of um, messages and texts in relation to items that we had on the programme earlier the cost of fuel Tony from Dunboyne phoned to say he filled his car last week and was 80 euro but yesterday the same fill was 96 euro he's had to travel 60 kilometres a day to and from work and he can uh, really feel it in his pocket he's not in a position to work from home and public transport in his area is not great so that is uh, uh, not an option for him. And uh, the farmers in the IFA, Martin from Navin was listening to the conversation with Tim Cullenan of the IFA and can't believe that this was announced before entering into any dialogue with farmers. And on refugees, Margaret via WhatsApp. Good morning, Alan. Ireland can only do what it can. We're a small country. We can't accommodate our own, and we haven't hope of accommodating 80,000 refugees. We've pledged money already, and we can only do what we can. The health service here is already under pressure. It will be absolute chaos. Now rally in Dublin over the weekend heard calls for the government to act in order to accelerate progress on women's equality issues in Ireland. Hundreds of people attended the No Woman Left Behind demonstration outside Leinster House on Saturday. The rally was organised by the National Women's Council of Ireland ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow. And Orla O'Connor, director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, joins us online this morning. Orla, thanks so much for joining us. One can only come to the conclusion... You know, when we have uh seen and heard what we've heard over the past eighteen months, particularly during COVID, that women are being left behind. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, good morning, Alan. I, I think it absolutely is. And just in advance of it, International Women's Day, just to wish everyone a happy International Women's Day to your listeners. um and it is a really important day, I think, to look at both to look at the advances that have been made, but also um, you know, the issues that are facing women every day and you know, certainly at the rally, there were, you know, so many different women's groups from around the country and and women who just came with their own handmade signs and banners talking about the issues of childcare, and particularly childcare, the expense of childcare, the lack of, of availability of it. And what an impact, you know, the, the significant impact it really has on women's lives, mm-hmm. whether that's in terms of, you know, being you know deciding on what job to be able to take because it needs to work around school times, for example, because there isn't after school there or, or for many women it's about being in sort of low paid part time mm. work because that 's all they can do so that then they they're not having to pay for
1: full-time childcare. Just on that point, Orla, we Mm. have not got childcare right in this country. We've tinkered around the edges. And I speak from the experience of having two girls who are now grown up and who are in Mm. childcare, and you were paying a small fortune way back then. You're still doing it now. Nothing has changed. We've tinkered at the edges
2: that's absolutely correct I mean there are parents and I just you know see there's more pieces in the paper today or you know paying over a thousand euro for a full time childcare place and that's if you can get one at this point point. Um, and also like the whole conversation about you know having a hybrid model of remote working or or being but you're still having to pay for a full time place so, so so parents are really struggling at the moment to actually get any sort of flexibility for places and I can see how from providers point of view well you know, they're, they want to fill their places too. So the, the model we have of childcare, it doesn't match how we expect people to work. And it's it's not meeting, it's certainly not meeting the needs of women. And we also have a system whereby the vast majority of workers within the system of childcare professionals are on very low wages, often just above the minimum wage. So there's a fundamental structural problem. And, and as you said, I mean, you're right, we tinkered with it. We haven't, we haven't really got to grips with it. And I think it, it was, without doubt, now one of the loudest I I think issues that you know women were raising raising on Saturday.
1: Now can we talk about you know women in politics the calls for gender quotas the calls for more women to get involved whether we like it or not the majority of carers in the home for children are women. I know it's not yeah. 100% the case that there are men, and it's shared, and that has changed, and thankfully it has over the past while, but the reality is women are precluded from going into politics because the resources and the supports are just not there for them when it comes to childcare. And until that is solved, we're in a hiding to nothing, surely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're like, you know, when you look at, for example, at politics, we're at about 23%. And at, at local level, it's exactly the same. And it's not, it's, you know, it's not really shifting. We, we saw the biggest increase in our, in, um, in the doll when the quota was introduced, um, it, it, not in the last election, in the previous one, mm. and it went from 16 to 23. But since then, it's dead at that, and still at local level, it's at that. And, and you're absolutely right, because, you know, at every meeting we have in the Women's Council, people talk about the issue of childcare, but also all forms of care, elder care as well, because it's mainly women who, within families, are doing that, um, and... and because we don't have proper support, then it really prevents women from, from making other choices, such as going into politics, and not only politics, but other leadership positions as well. Um, and we need to change that. We, we absolutely need to change that. Now, the way the Women's Council is, you know, and our members are saying is, yes, quotas, are, because it forces, it forces, it forces political parties, or it forces organisations to, to make the changes necessary. But even within that, We've got to get the infrastructure right. And one of the things that we were saying, you know, and the reason behind the no woman left behind is that that really impacts on particular groups of women even more. So if you're in a one parent family, you know, and, and and it's the majority of women who are heading one parent families and you don't have the supports for care, well, then you're really, really yeah. stuck. So that's why so many lone parents, for example, they're right in the centre of our housing crisis. They're also the ones who are in those low-paid, part-time work positions, because that is what they can do in order to, to facilitate you know, the lack of support for care. And I think one of the things that's been really important coming out of COVID is that, you know, grandparents really fills an enormous gap in Ireland for, for the lack of support for care.
1: And again, and it's, it's unfair. Hmm. It's unfair for grandparents to do it, and it's the state saying, "Well, the grandparents will sort it out, so we will abdicate responsibility."
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think the experience of COVID was when grandparents weren't there; it really brought home, and that's why I think part, you know, you know, part of the reason we had that rally was because of the anger people felt around it, and I think people are feeling a lot more angry because they they've seen very clearly in COVID how the the, the you know, the state systems aren't there and how much they were relying on grandparents. And and grandparents, of course, want to, you know, want to be there to to support for care, but they don't want to be part of the infrastructure around it or to always have to be there.
1: Okay, Ashley, can can we uh, just deal with one other matter which came very much to the fore during COVID, and that was the increase in the numbers of women reporting violence against them within the home, which uh, they were shocking, the figures. There was no question about that. And it's something that came front and centre, not just as a result of COVID, but some of the horrific stories we heard, particularly the murder uh, in Tullamore of Ashling Murphy. Now, there was a huge degree of momentum around the particular issue of women and, the, you know, their safety and how they feel going out at night. Do you think that has has waned a little bit?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think the, absolutely the experience in COVID, and I mean, the statistics have now shown there's, there was a significant increase, increase in calls both to frontline services, calls to guards. I mean, we're seeing, you know, like a, a, almost a registered increase of at least 20%.
1: But there was a kind of momentum building as a result absolutely. of those figures. But what I'm asking is, do you get the sense that that sort of relaxed a little bit that people aren't taking it seriously? No,
2: I, I think... I think, and certainly in the aftermath of of Ashley Murphy's murder, and you know, we called it a watershed moment, and we can see. I mean, for example, now in in every country, county, there is campaigns for refuge spaces because there isn't refuge spaces in every county. So I I think people are as you know as as angry about it and and want to see change. And also we've seen in the Women's Council more men get engaged in, you know, okay, how can we be part of this change? We want to be part of this and trying to come up with, you know, ideas around that. And also, I mean, we've seen a lot at at, at the rally, uh, Jason Poole, who's a a school teacher, but also um, who's the brother of uh, Jennifer Poole, who was murdered. Um, you know, he spoke very strongly about men being being a part of the change and men engaging in it. So no, I, I think the momentum is still there, and I also think we're going to have in the next few weeks the government is going to announce its new strategy on on violence against women, on gender-based violence, and that's going to be a key moment in terms of seeing are we meeting the scale of the problem. Um, but 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 I I, I really do believe on that. That watershed moment in, in relation to, to the murder of Ashling Murphy has really changed people's views on this. And, and I think particularly for younger women, I, because there were so many, I think, experiences and they were talking about their stories of, you know, almost living their lives, limiting living their lives because of the fear of harassment, for example, on the street. No, the one, one,
1: thing, one thing that shocked me as a father of two grown-up mm. grown girls was some of those stories that were recounted in the media of young women going out and being harassed in a sexual manner verbally. Mm. One would have thought that was you know, a thing of the past that did not happen anymore and you were only taken by the fact that it is very much alive in the streets, in this country in 2022 it's extraordinary is it not
2: it it is and our work with young women would really show that we'd almost reach a point of a certain um you know where it was seen as normal you know our work with with young women would say you know they almost see harassment as a normal part of of growing up and what you experience when you're out there and and I think one of the things that's changed is that unacceptability we We have I think reached point where people are saying no more, this is not okay. It's not okay that we constantly have to think about this in terms of where we go and you know um when when we go out uh, so i and I think that is really important. That sort of street level harassment that's taking place that has a huge impact. On you know on, on all women's lives and I think particularly on young women that that has to stop and it has to change and that's why you know when we're starting to talk now about a zero tolerance culture uh, you know how you can, how we can bring that zero tolerance culture to male violence I think that is really important and it is really important that men are part of that conversation.
1: Well, they have to be part of that conversation because they're the ones who perpetrate it against women and I mean when you think about it, a lot of it is passed off by men by saying I was only having a little bit of crack with you and there was no harm in it, but in reality it is harmful it has an impact on women particularly younger women who are out and about trying to just enjoy themselves
2: absolutely it has an enormous impact and 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 it is also created the fear of that harassment is also limiting as well and we saw you know so many stories from women in terms of you know always feeling that they need to go out in groups not being comfortable going out on their own and I think as well what was really illuminating was men saying you know I've never thought about that I don't think about that if I'm going for a walk in the evening with my dog or going you know going for a run those things don't really enter into their head whereas it's a constant for women and, and, and we have to change that because that is not a way for, for anyone for any of us to live our lives
1: We talk about change and change commencing in the classroom but change surely starts at home It's the attitude Mm. that, that is instilled into men particularly from a young age and that sexism that still exists not just in society but in the workplace everywhere
2: yeah absolutely and you're right. It is about it. We have to tackle this in every sector i I think the education system is important because we do really need to we need to have much more conversations, particularly i think in primary school and early on in secondary school about you know what does it mean to be to be a young boy and 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 how, I suppose, how do we challenge the, the, the stereotypes that are there, the myths that are there in terms of what that means? So that, that certainly needs to take place but absolutely in the home and also within our workplaces as well and particularly how we open up the conversations that, about violence, about domestic violence. Um, and I think it's good, for example, some of the things that are being looked at around leave for domestic violence in the workplace because the leave is important in itself but it's also about creating a very Different conversation about you know that it's 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 okay it's okay for women to come forward and it removes some of the shame and stigma and I I think that's a really important part okay. because we know how difficult it is for women to talk about these experiences.
1: Okay, Orlo O'Connor, director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, thank you for joining us this morning.
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
1: Welcome back to the programme. Dundalk and Uri Chambers will hold their sixth annual Brexit conference this week. While the protocol on Brexit in general rumbles on, business in Dundalk and Uri have accepted the position and have reacted. In a positive manner. Access between the two parts of Ireland remain as they were, while GB is a different story. The result has been a shift in trade away from east-west towards north-south. Paddy Malone of Dundalk Chamber joins us this morning. Paddy, thanks so much for taking our call this morning. Can we talk a little figure first? Figures, let's deal with that because the devil's in the detail and looking at the figures, they seem to be pretty positive in terms of in what you guys are involved in.
9: In The North South situation yeah. yes, it has been very positive. I mean, effectively, imports and exports in, into either in or, either jurisdiction, are up over sixty percent on, on, on a couple of years ago. Um, that's good news for all the all the people on this island. Uh, it means we're, we're doing business with our colleagues on the other side of the of the jurist, of the border, um, and it's very positive because what's happened is. Uh, so customers and, and, uh, in Dundalk have had to stop and say, right, what well, if I can't get, to, if, if Manchester's now awkward to deal with, can I get something from Belfast or Newry? And the same is happening in the other side. And, and it's, it's been a positive development. I think there's some element of distortion of trade with, with people moving goods slightly differently than normal. But overall, um, I know from my own business as an accountant in Dundalk, talking to my own uh, customers, They're buying and selling into the north and from the north a lot more than they were. And the same feeling, feedback is coming from Newry. So a positive situation. I mean, none of us wanted Brexit, Alan, uh, but we're making the best of a
1: bad job. Okay, we're making the best of a bad job. However, the status quo may not remain as is that we know. That could shift and it would be reckless and a bad business move to think that things will remain the same when they're constantly changing and shifting, surely.
9: Yeah, and that's exactly the point. And what we want to do is, I mean, we, we, we've got to recognize President Biden, or the coolie man, as I would call him. Uh, his mark is all over the fact that the, the, there is no change not said. I mean, he, he, made, he made that clear within, within minutes of being elected president, uh, even before he was inaugurated. So that's there. And if you talk to business in Northern Ireland, they will tell you the same. It's working. They, they they can work with the protocol. They can work with the restrictions that are at Belfast and Larne. And I'm not denying that there aren't restrictions in Belfast and Larne. There are, but they can work with them. Um, but they need to. There needs to be a voice from for them saying, "Hang on a second. We can work with this. That it's it." you know, that, that there isn't an economic problem, that the North isn't cut off from Britain, it isn't cut off from Europe. In fact, the is in the situation now where it has the best of both worlds. And more businesses from the North need to say that. And yeah, get but that it's, it's important
1: to understand as well um, that that suits some people, it doesn't necessarily suit other people who have their own agendas.
9: Yeah, I know we're into politics Correct. rather than into economics,
1: <laughs> and I tried to go down the road of politics and mix economics with it. But nonetheless, we have to take on board that there is that in the background, constantly there, there just constant ready to noise, pounce,
9: and that's what it is. And we've got to recognise it. But I think the reality is that if there was a, a simpler solution to the north than the, what the protocol is, or a better one that's obvious, and um, the British government would have been pushing this long ago. I mean, the fact of the matter is the protocol was more or less indicated two and a half years ago what we were going to do when Boris Johnson finally got Brexit done, um, as he sees it. I mean, obviously, you now, three years after pass, two years after leaving uh, the European Union, they're still there. Uh, so they, they haven't got Brexit done. Frost has failed
1: to try and do something about it. Trust but is it, there it, trying to do something about it. Everybody's failing.
9: Yeah, everybody's failing, and yet business is getting on with it. And I think what the business communities are saying is, leave it alone, it's working, it, we, can, we can live with this, uh, we can function with this, and Northern Ireland gets the best of both worlds. So if we can get that message, that economic message across to the politicians, maybe in time they'll listen.
1: Okay, well, it's, a, I mean, we're, we're talking microeconomics here in relation to business, that you were operating, one would say, in an insular manner here, that we have to take on board, that the world is a bigger place, and that we still have to do business with with the UK I mean have you abandoned doing business with the UK and given it up as a lost cause because no, no, of...
9: I don't think it's a matter of abandoning it I think it's a matter of recognizing where, where your market is if the, if the um, there is still huge amount of there's no great problem in dealing with business in the UK or with dealing business with technically with Great Britain uh, Northern Ireland is an easy job to do and um, there isn't a great deal of problems of dealing business with great, with, with great Britain to be fair to the British economy it is an open economy it's one of the world's leaders. There's no question about that. It's status isn't as big as, the, as it used to be. They're, they're not the country that they were a hundred years ago. And maybe if they realised that, we could we could all get on better with them. But we're not discarding it. And in fact, one of the emphasis that we're trying to put on this is, and there's a session on the section, of how to deal with, with with trading north east west rather than north south. The east. So, and last year's conference concentrated very much on what do businesses who want to deal with Britain, how do they go about doing it? What does the, what does the, uh, the fact that Britain is now outside the EU mean for us? And we're, we're doing that and we're supporting it. I mean, there is a session there um, done by Martin Agnew, who's a director of cross-border consulting, but in fact, cross-borders, sorry, which his focus is actually going to be on east-west. So Dublin and Dundalk to Liverpool and, and, and Manchester and, and vice versa. So we're not forgetting Britain. We're just simply saying that um, businesses have to move on, businesses have to move, re- recognize realities, and that's just where we're going. Um, now the only hope that I have is, and I think it, it will be common sense, will be that the British government will follow EU standards to a large extent, so that there won't be a huge divergence, so that we will be able to deal with, no, with, with, with Britain. I mean, let's face it, most Irish people go to England once or twice a year or on a reasonably regular basis. So, uh, you know, I don't think there'll be a fundamental change with the British economy. But... Uh, What we're hoping is that Britain aligns itself, keeps aligns itself with with the rest of Europe so that we can trade
1: easily. Okay, well, if we look at where you have come from and where you are now, what role, if any, has the Irish government played in terms of support, whether it be financial, whether it be expertise? I know we have uh, Michael McGrath there tomorrow, Conor Murphy's going to be there tomorrow. What are you going to be saying to them and what do you want them to say to you?
9: I I think, well, uh, from the southern side, and I take it from the southern side because that's the dark chambers focus, is that the, the loud Leo... On uh, the Thomas McAvoy, has been a, a huge support to those businesses that are, have less than 10 employees. Uh, he's been there to guide and help, and his expertise, having worked with the IDA abroad...
1: Okay, so we're talking about the local enterprise offices for we're people. we talking about the local yeah.
9: enterprise office here in the A here in... For, well, it's based in the Dock, but it's for yeah. the county of Louth. And he's done a great job. And I know from, from clients of mine and everywhere else that the, 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 that's, that degree of support has been there. Enterprise Ireland and the IDA... They look after the big boys and uh, both organizations have been very, very much prone to supporting. And the funding has been there to allow businesses to get that expertise and to buy in that expertise, which would have cost an offer of money otherwise. So I would say, you know, the, the government has done well with supporting uh, businesses, and, and the fact that you're looking at, as I said, that 50% increase plus on an import and exports across the border, it's a clear indication that that level of support was taken up by business, and that it has been a success. Mm-hmm.
1: Can I ask you to deal i suppose in the here and now at your conference on wednesday because it's going to be somewhat overshadowed by the events of what is happening in ukraine i say it from an economic perspective because as a result of sanctions we're going to see implications in terms of business whether it be in the food chain the retail sector or um inflationary pressures elsewhere that's something that has to be factored into what is going on in terms of trade surely
9: yeah and and just I'm glad you've mentioned it because I just want to pass a note of condolence to a friend of mine from Uri Chamber, Jerome Mullen. Uh, I understand that oh, last night he lost a relative at the border between Ukraine and Poland. He is the Honorary consul for Poland in Ireland and represents a lot of Polish people, both north and south, and has been a strong advocate for the Polish people. But he has relatives through his wife's connections in Ukraine, and one of them died at the border at the weekend uh, and we were going to ask Jerome to open the conference by making reference to Ukraine. So just on a personal note, can I just express my sincere condolences to Jerome and his family? Because it, it really is. It's when you hear it, on a, that you know someone personally who's been affected by it. The, the person died in a heart attack on, on, a, on the train on the way out of Ukraine. Um, now, to go back to the question you've asked, yeah, this is going to be a fundamental problem. I mean, it's, it's bigger even than 1989 and 1990 with the fall of the iron Curtain mm-hmm. and the changing there and, and the expansion of the European Union. This is going to put incredible pressure on us all, both economically, politically, and, you know, asking people to put their hands in their pockets. Like, if, if they're right and they're talking about 4 million people being dispersed out of Ukraine, and we take 2% of that, which is what we are expected to do, that is 80,000
1: people. Well, I think that figure is somewhat on the low side, if you we were to listen to some of the experts which we have had on and listening to them over the weekend. They're putting I, the I, figure I, at about 200,000.
9: Well, yeah, well, I was going to say, I, and, and that figure, while it looked huge a couple of weeks ago, is now looking yeah low, you know, so we are talking if we are talking about 200,000 people we're talking about, and most of it will be women and children, we are going to be talking about schools, we are going to be talking about accommodation we are going to be talking about just basic supports um, and Ukrainian people you know, they, they might not have had the EU standard of living, but they've had a reasonably high standard of living by European, by Eastern European standards so they, you know it's a, it's such a fundamental shift for these people that it is going to put huge financial pressure on us all. And to coming straight after COVID, it, it means the European Union is going to be struggling to deal with it. Now, the only thing is, watching the news and what, listening to the, what's going on in Poland, on the border with Poland, and Moldova, and Romania, it seems that, particularly the Poles, um, were ready for it and they've been doing a good job
1: but now, just from a, from a business perspective if we were to look i suppose towards the, the at the back end of this year one would presume that the it will be a very different landscape when we think about growth and when when we think well, about listen, profitability
9: we, 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 yeah i mean look unfortunately i'm of an age where i remember 79 and and 74 even the the, the, oil, the, crisis the, the and, oil crisis yep. and when oil crisis hit um, the fundamental shock shock that was given to the, to, to the Western economies was dramatic, and it took years to recover. And we're looking at now diesel at two euros a, a liter. We're looking at inflation going, starting to rumble on again, and uh, those of us of that generation that can remember inflation at 20%, yep. it destroys people's life savings, particularly people who were coming close to the, re- the end of their working life, or had been, reached their working life. It, it, it Decimated them and it, it, it fell, an awful lot of the problems fell economically on those on fixed incomes, the state pension and other areas. So it's going to be the same thing again unless the country thinks very carefully. But we are looking at a period of, you know, I think, I think a period of
1: uncertainty of more than, than anything else.
9: That's, that's reality. I mean, look, even the news last night where they're talking about the Minister for, Fire, Minister for Agriculture is putting pressure on farmers to grow wheat. I mean, the last time that happened, they said it was, the 19, it, was 19, it was during and post the emergency. In other words, everywhere else we called it World War II, but we called it the nice. emergency.
1: Paddy, um, we, unfortunately, we've got to leave it there, but Wednesday is D-Day for you guys, and best of luck. Well,
9: can I just simply say, if anyone yep. is interested in finding out the opportunities and the problems of dealing North-South, or even just dealing internally, talk to the, 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 the Leo office. It's an uh, ideal opportunity. It's free log on to ie and you'll get the details.
1: Great stuff. Paddy, thanks for joining us this morning.
6: Alan Cantwell on LMFM.
1: Welcome back to the programme. A couple of comments. First off, around refugees. Pat from Navin phoned in regarding UK- re- Ukrainian residents being forced to flee their country and asks, why have county councils got houses boarded up for months and in some cases years? He says there are empty homes all over the country. Why is it allowed when we have so many here looking for homes? Grania from Drauda, we have International Women's Day every year. But what? has really changed for women who still take on the main responsibilities for rearing children and are hindered in the workplace when we take maternity leave and time off to care for them. There's pressure on us to do everything and be everything. A whole-of-government approach is required in order to deal with the tens of thousands of refugees expected to arrive in Ireland in the coming months. Doris, a Limerick-based national migrant and refugee support organisation, says it's alarmed and concerned at the devastation and suffering unfolding in Ukraine. Doris CEO John Lennon as uh, bigger it's john lannon says more is needed to be put to put appropriate systems and supports in place to welcome ukrainian refugees coming here seeking protection and john joins us online this morning john good morning to you how are you good morning a couple of things we need to address first off is the sheer numbers that are going to be arriving on our shores and i don't think there's one person in this country that will not be welcoming, welcoming them with open arms but can we deal with the sheer numbers
10: it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's a catastrophic and frightening situation in Ukraine right now. Over a million people have fled from the country, most obviously into the surrounding countries like Poland and Moldova and Romania um, Slovakia but there are people arriving in Ireland as well um, we don't know as you say if it will be 10, if it will be 20, if it will be 30 if it will be up to 100,000 as, as, as I heard um, or even
1: 200,000
10: one, one politician made, we, we don't know but we do know that we have to be able to respond we know that we need to provide accommodation but we also know that because this is a protracted situation it could be a long time before people can return to their home country that we need to put other services and supports in place Now,
1: we we, we as a country do not have form when it comes to dealing with this level of refugees coming into the country We're not great as a government and I talk about successive governments as well as joining up the dots when it comes to putting in place the so-called all-of-government approach to deal with initiatives such as this So, it's potential catastrophe is it not?
10: And I mean, we, we've got a couple of things happening in the country at the moment that are related to this. So we have ongoing programs of resettlement of refugees from other parts of the world, like Syria. We have the commitment of government to end direct provision with up to 7,000 people who need to move out and to find homes and to be able to get on with their lives. Now we have this um, latest crisis on top of all of that. It's very encouraging, I have to say, and it's very welcome to see the positive response from um, the the public in terms of um, funds, in terms of money, in terms of offers of houses as well. I mean, we've been inundated over the weekend in Doris with people offering accommodation. The Irish Red Cross have huge numbers of of offers, Mm. as have other organisations. But Again, in order to avail of um, offers like that, there needs to be a coordinated and um, well-managed and well-organised response to ensure that, first of all, the families who are arriving are not left without the services and supports they need, basics like Healthcare, English classes, etc. But also that people
1: who... Well, there now is an entitlement which was signed off in Europe at the weekend where people coming into this country from Ukraine are entitled to health care, are entitled to free movement, etc. So that, to an extent, is taken care of. But I suppose the bigger point that we have to address is that there will be that welcome. The Taoiseach has talked about setting up a register of interest for people who want to help providing services or whether it's accommodation. But we as a nation, cannot do that indefinitely as individual families or people. There has to be a sustainable solution, surely.
10: Yeah, so you're right in saying that the temporary protection directive that has been agreed at European level will come into force here in Ireland. So the government departments are busy working at putting that into effect right now. But my point is that while the... The, the rights or the entitlements of people arriving from Ukraine to social welfare to education etc will be a reality. It's still giving effect to that and finding the ways in which it works effectively for people is what's important and that's where the challenge is if we have tens or if we have hundreds of thousands of of, of people arriving you know we, we, we need to find ways and, and this is certainly a challenge and I'm not you know, I have to acknowledge, you know, that for any government department that's trying to respond to this quickly unfolding situation, it it is a huge challenge and they do have to work. And and I'm sure that the, the Irish Refugee Protection Programme, um the um, in the Department of Children and Youth Affairs and also the Department of Justice who are giving effect to the Temporary Protection Directive will work together, will work with others as well to ensure that the, um, the immediate accommodation needs are provided for, but then that they very quickly find a path forward from that where people can just get their children to school here in Ireland, learn English, um, get get the social welfare that they're
1: entitled to. Can I just ask you, um, John, it doesn't exactly instill confidence into a government or any politician to be able to grapple with this mammoth task and that's exactly what it's going to be it's going to be mammoth when you consider that we have failed at every turn to resolve our own housing and homeless crisis now albeit that people are working on it and it's not like manufacturing digits that it can happen overnight it takes time it takes time to get the land it takes time to build the houses etc etc but we we have failed pretty miserably haven't we
10: well i mean this does put into kind of stark reality the fact that we have a housing crisis in this country to to begin with and and we've allowed that to go on for for too long we have too many people in ireland whether they were born here or born somewhere else who are homeless and and who are living in very substandard accommodation in in many cases and and you know we let's hope that now that it has come into stark sort of reality to us, given that we may have hundreds of thousands of people coming.
6: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage,
10: from Ukraine that we can start okay. getting Iraq together and we can start doing something about these ongoing problems that we have in the country okay. so that we are able to respond
1: John we must leave it there, John Lennon, who is Doris CEO, thank you for joining us this morning and thank you to our listeners for joining us this morning, we're back tomorrow same time <laughs>